0: Some of my grandchildren are unmarried and they've been with their partners for years and years. And I say, well...
1: This is Patricia Phillips. I
0: want to have a party. Why don't you get married? (laughs) Anyway. In
1: 1969, she's a young divorce lawyer, freshly sworn in and admitted to California state bar.
0: I didn't want to be bossed around by anyone. And if I became a lawyer, I could boss myself around.
1: On this particular day, she's found herself outside a restaurant in Los Angeles. Her goal? To investigate a possibly adulterous movie store.
0: And we were trying to find something that we could pin on him. We would go out to the Sunset Strip where he would go to restaurants. And I remember hiding behind bushes trying to photograph him presumably with some starlet or something like that. It was so ridiculous.
1: But that was what it took to get your client a divorce. Because before 1970, if you wanted out of your marriage, you had to prove that something within it had gone irretrievably wrong, and that the wrong was someone's fault. Under California's first divorce law, filed in the mid-19th century, you could end a marriage for the following reasons. Impotence, extreme cruelty, desertion or neglect... Habitual intemperance, a.k.a. drunkenness, fraud, conviction of a felony, or the old classic, adultery. And though the courts interpreted the spirit of the law slightly more liberally than its letter, you still had to get your lawyer to hide in a bush to catch your spouse in the act. It's a broken system. But by the next year, that all changes. California makes a radical attempt to fix everything. From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. Today I've got a story for you about the happiest day in many people's lives. The day they get divorced. Up until 1970, divorce was a tough thing to get in America. And that's because divorce is regulated by states. At the time, every state's divorce law said that someone had to be legally at fault in order to end a marriage. Divorces were granted to the innocent party, but only after they showed specific acts of misconduct. It made people divorcing go to war with each other. But on September 5th, 1969, California Governor Ronald Reagan signs the Family Law Act. Then things are suddenly different. The law goes into effect the next year and revolutionizes American marital life. It's the first law in the country that allows for no-fault divorce. Now you don't need to prove your husband is cheating on you to divorce him. No more lawyers hiding in shrubbery. And that, as we'll see, is quietly revolutionary. Over the next few decades, every state will adopt a version of this law. And as the concept of no fault becomes more popular, it rewrites about 100 years of legal and social history. Okay, so here at Eclipse, we spend a lot of time looking for stories. Some might say too much. But that's because the whole show is about finding stories that, by definition, do not want to be found. Which means we spend a lot of time going down dead ends. We kick a lot of tires here, and not all of them are fully inflated. This story started that way. I read somewhere that the day no-fault divorce went into effect in California, a ton of couples split. Which makes sense, right? I imagined hundreds of couples flocking to California courthouses the day the law went into effect because now it was easier than ever to end your crappy marriage. But when I started digging in, that didn't seem to be the case, at least not in a way I could prove beyond a feeling. But what I did find was equally fascinating, the story of how divorce has changed in America and how that tiny provision, no-fault divorce, was the thing that made that change possible. Even so, no-fault divorce was eclipsed anyway, either because it was strictly a legal change or because social conservatives just got less interested in using divorce as a weapon as it became a more common part of American life. But in the early days, it made a real difference. For everyone in California who was in a marriage that wasn't working and couldn't prove to a judge why it should end, the law was a godsend. Today, no-fault divorce is the norm. It's how divorce in America works. But back in 1970, no-fault divorce was controversial. And California was the first battleground. You're listening to our Valentine's Day episode. Welcome to Divorce Day. I want to pause here for a second to give you a very, very quick history of marriage. Until love was invented, marriage was a property contract. In medieval times, nobility and the common folk married not because of love, but because of political and economic gain. Marry someone and get their land, or their cows. Now that we've got that out of the way, a slightly longer history of divorce. It's old, and it's been done all over the world since antiquity. Historically, in Islamic marriages, you could just say, I divorce you three times and the whole thing was done. To give a more recent example, The Tokeji Temple in Japan, which was founded in 1285, became a refuge for women leaving their abusive husbands. If the women stayed for two years, the temple granted a divorce, which is how it came to be known as the Divorce Temple. That was the custom until 1873, when the courts took over. Anyway, let's fast forward to the extremely feminist historical period of colonial America. In the colonial America, it was
2: very difficult to get a divorce, but it was easier for a man in terms of adultery. For a woman, it had to be adultery and something else.
1: This is Stephanie Kuntz, an author and professor at Evergreen State College, where she teaches family studies. She's written and edited several books about the history of marriage.
2: Not until the second half of the 19th century, did cruelty really become a reason? And then they went into this fault-based divorce that many people idealize and think was a a much better deal. But you had to come to court with clean hands. In other words, if you had done anything wrong yourself, no matter what your spouse had done that was wrong, you couldn't get a divorce.
1: When I was speaking with Kuntz about the American history of divorce, she said some things that were pretty eye-opening. Namely, that divorce rates don't say a whole lot about the social fabric of America. But you can learn a lot about the state of marriage from the rate of divorce. As soon as you
2: get this idea that marriage should be about love, you're going to get people think that if the love ends, we ought to have a divorce. So right from the beginning of the invention of the love match, you've had people asking for divorce, and it's gradually increased uh, over time. I think that's a really important thing to understand about divorce, that It's less a sign that marriage itself has failed than the sign that we think marriage should be better than this particular marriage is.
1: Basically, divorce, like marriage, is socially constructed. The divorce rate fluctuates based on what's going on in society. In the US, divorce rates rose steadily in the 19th century, surged during the roaring 20s, and fell in the 30s because people couldn't afford to divorce. The marriage boom in the 1940s that was prompted by World War II led to a ton of divorces by the end of the decade, when those GIs came home. The divorce rate dropped in the 50s because men's wages were great and women's jobs were getting worse. Men could support a family on a high school diploma. Women couldn't participate in this post-war boom without being married. So people stayed together. But the divorce rate began to creep up again at the end of the decade, as new ideas about marriage took hold. And nowhere was the mid-century demand for divorce more evident in America than in divorce. Reno, Nevada.
2: And the mecca of the disillusioned bride is Reno, the gay little metropolis of Nevada.
1: Which has become it was so popular there that the city began using divorce in their tourism Nevada, campaigns.
2: Which has become world famous through its association with marriage and divorce.
1: Before no-fault divorce was legalized, the easiest thing to do to get one from an uncooperative spouse was to take a six-week trip to Reno. For what was known as the Reno Cure.
2: Freed of their marital obligations, but completely disillusioned in their dreams of conjugal felicity.
1: But I think the actress Lillian Roth says it best in the movie Story Conference, which was made about a decade earlier in
3: 1934. Five times now, that Reno judge has sung out.
2: You're free. You're free.
1: Lillian, by the way, was born in 1910. By the time she died in 1980, she'd been married six times. And divorced exactly six times. Her final marriage ended after 16 years in 1963, just a few years before No Fault became the law of the land in California. Everybody's
3: little pal, my husbands never understand That love is all that I demand I have to sue them
1: In 1969, California's family lawyers know that no-fault divorce is on the horizon. And while they're worried what it might mean for their jobs, they also know that the current system is a little bit silly.
0: The fault that you would have to show was so laughable.
1: Lawyer Patricia Phillips remembers one woman who wanted out of her marriage because of some bad party behavior. She said,
0: my husband goes and sits in the bedroom And he doesn't want to come out and visit with my friends. Okay, says the judge, divorce
1: granted. I mean, that's ridiculous. And yet, some lawyers are even brushing up on their tort law just in case they need to find new jobs. They're that worried that the new bill might put family lawyers out of business. Anyway, Reagan signs the bill, and it's chaos.
0: The immediate effect was that nobody knew what the hell they were doing. Even the judges were unsure of how this would affect what it is that they had to do.
1: But the thing about the legalization of no-fault divorce was that, at its core, it was a reflection of the present state of marriage. Judges would grant divorces for any number of reasons. Which casts Reagan's bill in a much different light. A fact. Divorce rates peaked in the 70s, but have been falling since the 80s. Right around the same time Patricia's fellow lawyers were worrying about their jobs, Stephanie Kuntz starts researching marriages and families because she's frustrated. It's 1970, and Kuntz is studying women's history in order to write her first academic book. And she soon realizes no one else has really written about this kind of history.
2: It was like either you could talk about what had been done to women through the ages or what a few women had done anyway. So I wanted to bring men and women into interaction. The only place I could think of to do that was the family, but that was very new kind of social history at the time. It wasn't very
1: well accepted. It had also taken about 13 years to research.
2: I looked up from the book and realized that while I'd been doing all of the studying and and research, uh, there'd been a change in the political uh, circumstances. By
1: 1988, when Kuntz's book was published, the American social and political landscape had radically changed. But the public conception of family hadn't you know, the white married couple with two and a half kids, a dog, and a white picket fence.
2: People who had been leading the uh, anti-integration movements and pro-war movements had suddenly added women to their boards and were all about defending the family, only they didn't know anything about it. And their liberal opponents didn't know anything about what the real traditional family was either. So I decided to take the Thirteen years, I think, I I researched for that book and turned it into something a little more accessible, and that turned into a book called The Way We Never Were, which came out in 1992.
1: The book went after common misconceptions, like how that nuclear family I talked about before was in fact sustained by tons of government handouts. Stuff like the federal loan programs and the GI Bill. This was around the time when Vice President Dan Quayle was blaming Murphy Brown, a fictional sitcom character, for being a single mother.
3: It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice.
2: I quickly became the flavor of the week to answer Dan Quayle, and I've been doing a lot of public discussion about this ever since.
1: She even got booked on Oprah to talk about this.
3: My next guest, Stephanie Cohn, she says sometimes divorce makes for a better father.
1: And she's the author of in the late 80s and 90s, social conservatism was ascendant in America. There was a real stigma against divorce, driven by culture warriors who framed divorce as something that harmed children and drove up rates of poverty and crime. On Oprah, Kuntz's conservative opponent compared divorce to smoking cigarettes. — Cigarettes is not good for your health. — Excuse me. — Growing up without
2: two parents —— Smoking is bad for your health. It's life-threatening everywhere. Single-parent families and divorced families have extra risks, but they are not cancers. And it is terrible to label them
3: that way. — In 1993,
1: The Atlantic argued that Dan Quayle was right in an article titled, Dan Quayle Was Right. The author argued that no-fault divorce harmed children and the social fabric of society. They also claimed that it was tantamount to a gigantic natural experiment.
2: Because no-fault divorce was adopted at different times in different states, sociologists had the opportunity to, to actually study what happened and see the difference. And what they found in the first five years in every state that adopted it, there was, yes, a big influx of divorce, which later leveled off and eventually fell. But there was also about a 30% decline in domestic violence rates and uh, even a small decline in the number of wives killing their husbands. So clearly, it was an important safety valve for some marriages.
1: Certainly fewer dead husbands is a good thing, but not every state was on board yet. If you wanted to get a divorce and were in a state without no fault, you'd still have to go through the old process of proving that you were wronged. And that's the case for a very long time. Longer than you'd think. After the break, a story from the last state in the union to have fault based divorce. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray.
3: And I'm Leah President.
1: And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.
2: If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it.
1: This is Jane Shamanish.
3: After 10 years, and what I calculate was well over 100 relationships, I concluded that if you were a psychopath, completely screwed up, or in some way mentally imbalanced, you would be attracted to me.
1: She's a lawyer based in New York, and she's one of many people who couldn't take advantage of no-fault divorce. Even though she didn't seek a divorce until the 21st century, it takes that long for No Fault to make its way onto the books across the country. And Jane's story is illustrative of the consequences. She and her ex met in college. She was 17. He was 24. They were together for seven and a half years, and then married for about as long. They had a kid, bought a weekend house, and then they grew apart, and Jane started thinking about divorce. That's in 2006. At the time, New York still doesn't have a no-fault divorce law in its books, which means that Jane can't just say she wants out. She and her ex have to figure out who is legally at fault.
3: When I went to the attorney for some advice, that was earth-shattering because the first thing that she told me was, you stand a real chance at losing your kid, okay? Right now, he's positioned to be the primary caregiver and your like the dad and you have a nanny but you can't answer who's your kid playing with what does she do all day what did she eat for breakfast and so on and so forth
1: it was an awakening jane actually credits this lawyer with making her a better parent because she realized she needed to be paying more attention to her kid eventually she changed the locks and then served her ex with papers after he dropped off their daughter And then New York's fault-based divorce law made everything worse. What it did to him was it lit a fire. And so
3: he went out and got what he would call the killerest lawyer he could find. And so we then started this process of physical papers back and forth, which included every ugly thing we had done to each other. This was war.
1: Jane explained that her ex even went after her license to practice law because apparently that's considered divisible property. The process dragged on for years. Finally, they figured out how to agree to a settlement. Which then meant they had to figure out what grounds they needed to use to actually get divorced.
3: It's ugly because you can't file papers and say this is the accusation without getting into the details. You're busy learning things and feeding it to your lawyers. And when you put it on paper, it feels bad. It feels like you're naked.
1: After years of litigation and revisiting every single spat, Jane was divorced. And by the end of it, she was different.
3: I changed my goal and my focus and started thinking that my goal in life was to live my best life. God, I sound like Oprah. We would both tell you right now that we are significantly happier separately than we we were ever together.
1: So in the end, it was worth it. Stressful and time-consuming and expensive, but worth it nonetheless. And the state of New York finally got their happy ending, too. It passed no-fault divorce in 2010, making it the very last state in the union to do so. At the end of the day, divorce is about marriage, which is about our relationships, which are all socially determined. The proverbial butterfly flaps its wings and something across the ocean shivers. People become freer, which leads to them choosing better relationships and leaving bad ones. I think it's important to remember that the divorce rate isn't really about divorce at all. It's a reflection of our ideas about what relationships should be. Today, Nevada has the third highest rate of divorce in the nation, But it also has the most marriages. And these days, you don't have to live in Reno for six weeks to get divorced. I should note here, as an aside, that the American divorce rate isn't 50%. That statistic is based on a misconception. The idea that you can just divide the rate of marriages by the rate of divorces in a year and get a number. To really know how many people are getting divorced, you have to compare them to the other people their age who got married at the same time. Their peers. America's divorce rate has fallen around 24% since 1981, and that drop is due almost entirely to millennials staying married. Conversely, the divorce rate for people 50 and older has more than doubled since 1990. This is actually a beautiful state of affairs. Young people are finding out if they're compatible before they're married, and older people are figuring out what kinds of marriages they want to be in. This isn't an advice podcast, but if you're married and hoping to stay that way, Stephanie Kuntz has some, um actionable words of wisdom
2: having sex not all the time once a week is fine uh there's no qualitative difference uh, more than once a week but once a week seems to be a pretty good indicator that uh you're on the same page so forget date night make it stay home and have sex
1: night <laughs> <laughs> good activities yeah eclipsed is a production of campsite media it's hosted by me, B. John Steven, and written by Michael Canyon-Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our production assistant is Allison Haney. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann, and our theme song is by Doug Slaywood. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael, never hid in a bush, Canyon-Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scheyer, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipse at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at EclipsePod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm Cakes. We also have a phone number. Leave us a message, pitch us a story, or tell us your nightmares. Give us a call at 949-490-2127. You might be featured on an upcoming episode.